Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week, the latest podcast series from The Critic. This week, The Critic's deputy editor, Graeme Seward, asked Professor Jeremy Black about similarities and differences between British and European conceptions of monarchy. Professor Jeremy Black, uh, among the many eulogies given to Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh at his death, was that uh, he was one of the modernisers of monarchy. Um, It seems to me that over the uh, more than 1,000 years of of first English and then British monarchy, um, a a number of of different uh, periods have been times of reform. Should we see each royal family, each dynasty, uniquely in its own terms? Or does the concept of monarchy, uh, particularly in in, in the British Isles, have something which is, is a continuum to which each different monarch and each different dynasty feeds into? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I think one of the uh, issues with thinking about monarchy is that the nature, I think here we have to pull back, the nature of monarchy varies, and therefore each monarch, each dynasty, has to relate to the circumstances which led to them coming to the throne and also which reflect the culture of the period. So monarchy is necessary, you use a very good phrase about modernization. What I would put is something like, I can't think of the word at the moment, but making specific to a particular moment in that monarchy both uh, in the British context of a hereditary monarch um, relates to a legitimacy based on the past and an office defined in the past in constitutional terms, but also takes on validity and power in particular contexts. And this is not least because of the way in which uh, dynasties replace other dynasties. So if you think about it, um, to consider um, two very different episodes, but capturing the same thing, the Norman dynasty in 1066 had a claim on the inheritance of Edward the Confessor, but in practice, it's position rested on a military conquest that got rid of the previous monarch, Harold, um, and that, uh, as it were, looked rather different than if you're thinking about the situation in which James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England, in which there is no such conquest, and the new dynasty comes to power as a result of hereditary chance, the absence of children from the last three of the the Tudors. Um, And I'm not sure one can have hard and fast rules. I mean, one uses the term monarchy, but um, it it means very different things. I mean, if you think about it, Lord Protector Cromwell, first Oliver Cromwell and then his son Richard Cromwell, Um, who were there between 1653 and 1659, Oliver and then Richard, um, are monarchs, but they're not kings. Um, But to discuss their position without considering them in terms of monarchy would, I think, be rather strange. And then you have the problem posed, which we fortunately don't have at the present day, uh, with differing individuals or families claiming the monarchy, each claiming a 
legitimacy and sometimes a prudential reason why they should be monarchs as well, but at least a legitimacy, which means that there are rival monarchs at any one time. And that, again, provides a very different context to the situation um, in, the, in the present world. So one of our difficulties is we read back from the present to assume past models of clarity of succession, of legitimacy of dynastic position, which on the whole, I think one has to put question marks against for big periods of English history, British history, and I hope I'm not offending you as a Scot, also in terms of Scottish history, because of course the House of Stuart had um, clashes within itself, which was one of the reasons why um, at least one Stuart was murdered. Well, I, I want to explore the, the nature of the legitimacy of, of kinship and also put the British experience in a, in a European context. In, in the British experience, we, we think of it as a hereditary succession in which, except in um, you know, exceptional and unusual circumstances such as uh, uh, you know, interruptions through war and murder and, and, and regicide and so on, uh, you know, there, there is a direct line uh, you know, following in which the, the, the eldest, generally the eldest son, the eldest surviving son, I inherits the throne. I in Europe, though, I mean, there are various different forms of rule, some of it hereditary, but there were electorships and so on. Um, the, the model of the electorship, why did that not really have much purchase uh, within the British Isles? Well, by electorship, I think what one should properly be talking about is elective monarchs, of which the most prominent modern example would be the Pope. Um, um, there were elective components in English monarchy, um, not least when there was a lack of clarity as to whom should be successor. I mean, you could argue that there was an elective dimension when King Stephen um, succeeded Henry I in 1135 instead of Matilda, Henry I's uh, daughter. Um, and there are also elective uh, nature to some aspects of um, Anglo-Saxon monarchy. One's got to be careful here, but essentially the monarch has to be um, uh, regarded as appropriate to the leading figures in society. And that dimension can be seen also with the succession of Edward the Confessor in 1042, though he obviously has a dynastic throwback to the previous Anglo-Saxon monarchs. It can be seen with Harold becoming monarch in 1066. And to a dimension, William I was acclaimed um, when he was crowned in London in 1066. So monarchy by acclamation as an aspect um, continues in the uh, English stroke British system. Um, and in some cases, very conspicuously so, when Richard III, for example, becomes um, king as opposed to Edward V in uh, 1483. Um, I think what one's talking about on with the elective monarch monarchical systems on the continent is ideas of a, um, well, comes from two separate dimensions. 
One is the dimension of the monarchus primus inter pares, first among equals, the notion which you have in, particularly in inverted commas, I wouldn't call them barbarian, but in barbarian societies and from them into feudalism of the monarch as the first among the, uh, the tribe, the tribal leaders, and then subsequently the feudal aristocracy. And of course that is, I mean, this is being very crude and I would, temper this quite a lot if I was writing this out and stoke it with footnotes, but I'm just trying to set up the, uh, the proposition here. This is rather different to a tradition of monarchy, which you see um, in the Christian account of the Roman Empire, the late Roman Empire, in which, as it were, there is a closeness between uh, Bishop of Rome and the emperor or his counterpart in Constantinople and the emperor and that in a way that provides a system in which the clerical uh, endorsement including uh, the use of holy oil at, um, at the coronation turns the coronation into a Christian act in which the monarch is not as it were dependent on his, because um, we are talking about males here, on his tribal counterparts. And I mean, the classic example of that is the coronation of Charlemagne in 800 by the Pope. Um, Charlemagne is already the King of the Franks, but in becoming emperor, he is giving an, given an exalted monarchical status, which depends upon a very different validation. So that's one nature of attention over monarchy. Another notion of attention over monarchy, which helps to lead to an elective dimension, are ideas of, of uh, as it were, accountable monarchy. Let's just put it accountability. So a classic example of accountability in the English context is Magna Carta and its subsequent iterations. And linked to that, the idea that Henry III's uh, monarchical position in part rests not just on the fact that he's the king, son of King, king John, but also because after all, there is a, another rival um, for the position, the French Dauphin, who had been supported by some of the nobles opposed to King John, the idea that Henry III um, endorses and accepts Magna Carta. In other words, there is a degree of election. He is electing to do that, but there is a degree of accountability which determines his position. And the classic British example of that is the succession of William and Mary replacing um, James II. James II is quite clearly dynastically um, the uh, correct monarch, um, but there is without a doubt an element of election, although the king did not emphasize, William III did not emphasize that, in William III, as it were, endorsing a separate set of values in order to explain why he is going to be an accountable parliamentary monarch. And you could argue that thereafter, the British monarchy is a dynastic succession within a elective monarchy, because the act of election was made in 1688. I mean, George III, very famously, I've discussed this in my big biography of him, uh, George III very famously took the view that the correct rulers by hereditary position were the Stuarts, um, uh, which meant Charles Edward Stuart and then his brother, Henry Cardinal 
uh, York, but that he was monarch, George III, because of the Glorious Revolution. Um, and I dare say um, that although his successors would not have wished to uh, necessarily, they weren't noted, and that's not a criticism for discussing constitutional niceties, which often is a good idea not to discuss constitutional niceties. Um, I think they would probably have taken the same position, that there is an, a degree of accountability. And you could see that most recently in the pressure um, um, brought on Edward VIII by the government at the time of the abdication crisis. They were more or less saying the king has to be, ab um, has to, um, be accountable and we are going to elect, as it were, to make him abdicate if he doesn't do what we think appropriate and therefore be in effect electing the next brother. The next brother. Now, when you look at elective monarchies on the continent, obviously the papacy is not an example. There have been examples of popes being related to other popes, um, uh, but that is not the general way the papacy operates. But if you think about, for example, um, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, uh, the, uh, the, the imperial ruler of the Germanic lands, um, for long periods of time, these figures were elected from within a ruling family. So from 1638 until the empire came to an end in 1806, all bar one of the emperors was a member of the Habsburg family, usually the one who is dynastically the most obvious successor. And the only exception, which was Karl Albert of, uh, Karl Albrecht of Bavaria, the emperor, uh, Charles Carl VII, uh, who is elected in 1741 and dies in 1745. That is because, um, although there is a Habsburg rival, the husband of Maria Theresa, the husband of Maria Theresa, who's Stephen, um, uh, uh, Duke of Lorraine, lacks much political clout. He's not real, you know, the, the Habsburg male line, the Austrian Habsburg male line has come to an end and that weak at that point and that weakens um, the idea. So I wouldn't put it quite so crudely as elective versus hereditary, but I think you're right in saying there's interesting aspects of the British monarchy and one of the most interesting is its longevity. And um, if you think about it, states which had very much a monarchical principle, and if we're talking about Europe, we could easily be talking about non-European societies like China, for example, or Egypt. But if you're looking at European societies, um, these st the states that become republics are not necessarily states in which uh, there was much of a republican background um, or, you know, um, and it's generally to do not with some failure within that society, but because of conjunctures that were thrown onto it, often as a result of conquest, partition, whatever. The end of Poland, for example, in 1795, with the partition by Russia, Austria and Prussia, brought to an end the Polish monarchy, which was an important monarchy. Um, and... There's nothing inevitable about that. There is nothing inevitable about the end of the Romanov dynasty in 1917 in Russia. Um, I think it's fair to say that the 
the, the consequences of World War I played the key role in destabilizing that monarchy. I mean, it wasn't helped by Nicholas II being incompetent, uh, but many political systems survive incompetence, not just monarchies, but democracies or republics themselves. So when we look at the longevity of the well, English then British monarchy, uh, do you think ultimately that's more down to the fact that uh, uh, Britain wasn't invaded and replaced by another form of, of alien government? Or is it down to the convulsions of the 17th century, the, the civil wars and, and particularly the, the glorious revolution, which um, sufficiently reformed uh, British monarchy to make it adaptable to, to subsequent change? Well, that's very interesting. Can I make a caveat first and then answer that very interesting question? Um, Britain not being invaded. I mean, obviously, Britain was invaded successfully, as in 1066 uh, <laughs> or, or 1688. But the point is, in each case, what replaced monarch, as indeed happened in 1016 when King Canute took over, what in each case happened is monarch was replaced by monarch. That ceases to be necessarily the case in two contexts. One, the interregnum in the mid-17th century, because then Cromwell replaces Stuart monarchy in Scotland. So in other words, Scotland becomes a part of a British republic as a result of conquest, not choice by the Scots, or political changes unique to Scotland at that point. Um, the of course, the French back the Irish rising in 1798. At that stage, France is a republic. And had Britain or just Ireland been successfully conquered in the 1790s, then it's, it's possible to see a republican interlude developing in Britain as a result of invasion. But interestingly enough, if you look at the prospects of invasion in 1805 by Napoleon or in 1940 by Hitler, in each of those cases, the conquering tyrant would have imposed their own system, but Napoleon was apt to either merge areas with France, like he did, for example, Holland or most of Italy, or such obvious French places as Hamburg, uh, they all became part of France, or to establish a um, member of his family or a um, member of his uh, entourage as the monarch. So if Napoleon had won in 1805, you would probably have had uh, one or other of those options followed. Um, and, you know, as happened with Spain, when he conquered Spain, or the French conquered Spain in 1808, he put one of his brothers in. Um, so again, you would have continued to have monarchy, but I don't think that you... Um, would have talked, you know, so you would have had continuity in that sense, but you wouldn't have had continuity in the context of a monarchy. In the case of German rule in 1940, interesting, um, there may well have been, probably would have been, a military government imposed, so Britain would have been part of, in effect, the imperium, the empire of the Third Reich, which had a kind of emperor figure in Hitler, although he wasn't actually crowned in a constitutional fashion. Um, uh, he saw himself as some kind of figure of destiny. Um, or 
they might have tried for a quisling figure, which is one of the reasons why the position of Edward VIII was important in 1940, whether he would, A, um, be brought under German control and B, be willing to be under German control. The two are slightly different. I mean, the man of integrity under that position would have probably committed suicide, but I'm not sure anybody would have seen Edward VIII as a man of integrity. Um, so, you know, these are, these are interesting um, sort of things to consider. Now, that's different to the question today, which is that um, it's more likely that if a country is uh, goes through a period of um, intense political challenge, it's more likely that it would not keep an, a dynastic position of hereditary monarchy. Although, I mean, it's interesting to see how Japan did so in 1945, but that was dependent on the cooperation of the occupying powers, uh, well, specifically the United States. Whereas if you look at states like Romania or Yugoslavia or Bulgaria, they lost their monarchies because quite clearly that was not the interest or views of the Soviet um, uh, invaders and their local quislings. Now, you ask about whether British monarchy essentially survives because it adjusts in the 17th century. And that, again, is a fascinating question. Um, the bland Whiggish answer would be to say yes, and to talk about the adaptability, and we might bring out some Burkean phrases. And, you know, a lot of me sympathises with that, and there is a lot of accuracy in that. But it's not the complete picture, because obviously there is also, as you know, in the 18th century, the argument that the monarchy or the political system has failed to sustain the, um, the deal, as it were, struck with the Glorious Revolution. This is usually argued to be to do with corruption um, and corruptibility. Um, corruption in a broader sense than, you know, somebody slipping David Cameron some share options. We're talking about something broader than that. Um, and the, um, I think the situation there would be to point out that however successful you might feel British monarchy was, and however successful I might like to feel it was, um, because I'm a patriot and a conservative, um, I think it's fair to say that the American Revolution scarcely suggests a vote of confidence in British monarchy or in the way in which the Constitution is supposedly working. So I think one has to be aware that monarchy did not uh, always lead to the outcomes. But you would be correct to say that the British monarchy was not a revanchist monarchy in the sense of seeking to argue that failures in the political system meant that you should have stronger monarchs. Now, ignorant critics, and there were many of those in the past as there are in the present day, uh, were prone to argue that that was true of George III, but that was not true of George III. George III was not a tyrant. And when he sent troops into London in 1780 during the Gordon riots, that was because there had been a total breakdown of law and order, not because he wished to 
um, see royal power expanded. And in fact, he disassociated himself very clearly from Gustavus III of Sweden, who had, had staged, in effect, a coup and brought to an age, a end the so-called Swedish Age of Liberty in 1772. And that was the closest parallel to the British governmental system of that period. Well, George III isn't trying to do that. Um, and if you then look forward into the 19th century, um, George IV uh, may in the 1820s have been disinclined to support uh, Catholic emancipation or uh, extended rights for Protestant nonconformists, but he doesn't use that to argue there's a crisis of the constitution and his powers need to be enhanced or extended. And what's interesting is the monarchs are willing to adapt. Adaptation is always difficult, but on the whole, the British tradition of pragmatic conservatism, and that may in fact owe a lot to the Glorious Revolution and owe a lot to the Crown's awareness of the background of its position. And, you know, George III is important here because he was king from 1760 to 1820. I mean, you know, and his two successors, not only are they his sons, but they're certainly both come to the throne of, at an age when they are not going to do a Gustavus III and push through a new monarchy of great power. And then it's Queen Victoria, and she's not going to do that either. So if you like the last chance for... Um, um, a stronger monarchy is George III's. And George III has a constitutional way that is offered him to do that um, in the sense that the suggestion that he should have separate authority and powers vis-a-vis -vis the American colonies, that in a sense the American colonies, either separately or together, should be the in effect dominions and they should be under the crown and that that would limit the power of the uh, Westminster Parliament. George III isn't willing to accept that, but that of course would have put him in a much stronger position because if he'd fallen out with the Westminster Parliament, um, there were other parliaments within the empire, including that one in, uh, in uh, Dublin, which might well take a different position, but he doesn't go down that route at all. Um, and then if you look at the late 19th century, Queen Victoria is willing to be chivied by Disraeli, flattered, whatever terms you wish to use, into becoming Empress of India, which in part is a counter to uh, the Second Reich, the German uh, King of Prussia becoming uh, Emperor. But Obviously, whereas the German uh, uh, Kaisers are militaristic figures, and you know, there's this naive and silly view in 1914 that Germany doesn't have a major responsibility for World War I, and that the, world, the responsibility is systemic. Well, that's just ridiculous. The very militarized nature of decision-making by and around the Kaiser is totally different to the nature of decision-making by the very civilian governments of France and Britain. But there is no equivalent to um, Wilhelm I or Wilhelm II in that context in Britain. So again, I think that's very interesting. And when you do have clear failures of you know, the system. I mean, 
however way, much you may want to look at it. I mean, there's a failure of the system, uh, one that is perceived in um, 1916, 15, 16, which leads, of course, to the uh, fall of Asquith and the determination to have a more vigorous war, war effort. There's a failure of the system which leads to the um, uh, independence for Ireland and the fate for much of Ireland, I should say, sorry. Um, and there's a failure of the system in 1931 that leads to the formation of the national government and again in 1940. Now, I mean, you know, we could, uh, those, these are many factors are involved in these and we can discuss the severity of these failures. But the point is, none of them are used by the monarch or a member of the royal family to create a stronger monarchy. And I think that's an important aspect of, and the very existence of the monarch then means that it is harder, it's not impossible. I mean, you can see, um, for example, in Japan with Tojo, you could argue, um, but it makes it much harder for there to have a kind of secular, totalitarian, either individual, General Franco, for example, in Spain, um, or um, the or a, a sort of a, a junta, a, a group, um, you know, whether on the right or indeed on the left. I mean, all a Politburo is or a central committee is is a, a junta of the left as opposed to a junta of the right. I wonder how having an empire in the 18th and 19th centuries shaped the British monarchy. I mean, as you say, it wasn't still Disraeli flattered. Victoria by creating the, the title of Empress of India, but although they didn't have the title Emperor, should we really be thinking of uh, Hanoverian uh, kings as, as emperors in all but name? And um, as the head of state over this large empire, did that in a way almost weaken their constitutional power at home? It, it diffused the power or, or am I wrong to... No, yes, a very good question. Actually, you don't ask wrong questions. These are the things that we, all of us, all of us taking part, and I hope listeners as well, um, will understand that when we're discussing things, what we're trying to do is to prompt each other's thoughts, but also to prompt the thoughts of listeners. And, you know, history is a non-linear process in, the, in, in, a, in a didactic fashion. In other words, somebody may say something, but you may then respond by saying they're wrong, and we can think about that. Um, so... Can I just, first of all, I think that's an excellent point. Though, can I just start again with a historical caveat? And there is no reason for you to know this. Um, and listeners may be interested, if they want to pursue this further, there's, I've done several books on empire, including actually one which may be, which is the biggest one of all, is called the British Seaborne Empire, which is an interesting one. Um, now, the thing to bear in mind is the idea of Britain as an empire is, has got quite a long background. Uh, there are elements of it in the um, uh, old English monarchy in the 10th century, the idea that there is an imperium um, over the other territories of the British Isles, or at least of Britain. Um, this was not a very welcome view if you lived in uh, what we would call Scotland or Wales, but nevertheless it was a view that was taken. Uh, the view that was pushed more strongly in the 1530s, things like the Act in Restraint of Appeals, the argument there is that England was an empire. Why was England an empire? The argument was that because it was an empire, 
you couldn't take decisions such as the king's great matter, in other words, his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, his marriage to Anne Boleyn, his securing of the male succession that way, you couldn't take those into a non-English jurisdiction because as an empire, England was jurisdictionally equal uh, to any state on the continent, in most obviously the empire, which was the state then ruled by Charles V, nephew of uh, of uh, Catherine of Aragon, an ally of the Pope. So there are different backgrounds of empire that can be offered as opposed to just the functional idea of empire, which you are valuably talking about. Now, if we look at the functional ally, uh, element of empire, I've argued in a number of works that the major British experience of empire, <coughs> excuse me, um, really begins in the medieval period with either the success or the attempt to extend the power of the kings of England in Wales, or what we call Wales, Welsh principalities, in Scotland and in Ireland. And that that is in many senses a key situation. Now, it obviously failed in the end, but you could see somebody like Edward I at the end um, of you know his period in his life, I mean, he dies in 1307. You can see Edward I as a kind of proto-imperial figure, if you wish to throw the word proto around. It seems to get thrown around a lot these days, uh, including by yours truly. Um, if we then look at how empire is classically conceived of, often wrongly conceived of, but then ignorance is widespread, um, which is ruling people who live at a big distance. I mean, that's a ludicrous notion of empire. The most successful empires in history have been places like China or Russia, which have had imperial rule over contiguous territory. Uh, but any, nevertheless, if you wish to look at empire in those terms, then England stroke Britain, which is you know, obviously you have the union of the crowns and then the union of the parliaments. England stroke Britain follows the pattern essentially set by Spain and to a lesser extent, Portugal. Um, and there isn't anything unique to the British circumstance, nor is it necessarily the case that you should assume it would have been unique. But having said that, and coming back to differentiating. The values of the British system were more egalitarian or more liberal, whichever term you wish to use, as far as British people were concerned, including British settlers beyond the, um, the, uh, the ocean, than their counterparts in Spain, Portugal and France. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. One of them, I think, is exactly as you say, the constitutional and political changes of the 17th century and how these create a different ethos and practice of politics. Secondly, religious pluralism, as you will probably know, um, the British Empire did not insist that you should be um, a, a Christian, let alone a Protestant. Um, I think, um, you know, Scholars have argued, and John Boscher, for example, on the French Empire in New France, that one of the things that made it hard to attract settlers was in part that you couldn't attract 
maverick groups. I mean, one of the things the British did were, you know, they, you know, if you were a German refugee in Britain in the early 18th century, one of the poor Palatines, for example, or a Salzburger, um, uh, these were Protestant Germans who'd been kicked out. They weren't Anglicans, weren't Anglicans at all. Um, you could go off to the British colonies. I mean, Georgia was largely founded in order to settle the Salzburgers. Um, and you, you could make good, but also make good for the empire. And to that extent, the empire was singularly benign. And it needs to be remembered, you know, people might think that the British empire was totally hypocritical because, you know, you sing, they sang rather, Britons never, never should be slaves. What they were talking about was the idea of slavery as a political construction in which control was wielded by an authoritarian government. Now that meaning of slavery has been lost and people instead have focused on private slavery, in other words, working for somebody else with very little, if any, liberty. Um, actually, that means, and you know, I've discussed this in my histories of slavery, that, mean, that means they've got a very partial understanding of slavery and don't understand that you can have entire slave societies like modern North Korea, or indeed it has to be said, totalitarian regimes in Africa at the moment. I mean, it is deeply ironic, uh, to put it mildly, that people um, complain about the 18th century, the iniquities of the 18th century British system, of which there doubtless were terrible things that happened. And these were, um, you know, wrong, period. I think most of us would understand that. But it's rather odd that you can't do anything to change the mind of people in the 18th century. You might try and have a go at dealing with modern states like Equatorial Guinea. Um, you know, but people don't, of course, because they'd rather sit around and um, take a different approach. Anyway, um, so if you're looking at the 18th century British Empire, the British Empire uh, ran a system um, of which British settlers abroad, um, and I think it's fair to say settlers who were similar to them, had a reasonable set of liberties. They didn't satisfy some, though many others were willing to fight for George III in the 13 colonies. Um, they constructed a situation then in which it's not so much that it weakened or strengthened monarchy back in Britain, because I don't think you would say that George III or his successors were seeking to alter the paradigm within which they were operating. And I think that's very important. Um, and there is a whole host of reasons for that. But having more colonies doesn't make the British monarchs try and be stronger, or for that matter, nor does it make them weaker. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, no more than it does today. I mean, at the present moment, it's entirely possible that those states outside Britain, uh, where uh, the monarch is head of state, may move in a different direction. That's not going to make the, Brit the British monarch stronger or weaker, and it's entirely an, a matter for both those states monarch, but it's not actually going to affect the timbre of British politics. Did the, did the Hanoverians bring any specifically German conceptions of, of monarchy to their role when they became uh, uh, kings of Britain? 
Well, George I, who becomes king in 1714, was born in 1660. He's not a young man. Uh, George II, who becomes king in 1727, is born in 1683. He's not a young man either. And what that means is that, again, as you very correctly say, a lot of their assumptions are based on the way that they have seen um, rulership operate in Germany. Uh, the Electoral House of Hanover only had gained its electoral position very recently. Uh, it was not the strongest of German um, second-ranked dynasties. So obviously, the first rank is the Habsburgs, but it's not as strong as the Wettins of Saxony, the Wittelsbachs of Bavaria, uh, the Hohenzollern of, uh, of Brandenburg-Prussia. And in a way, getting the uh, British succession is the jackpot. I mean, it really is. So um, then it's not as though that they can subsume um, Britain to a stronger um, foreign position, as would have been the case if, for example, Queen Mary had died and her Queen Mary I and Philip II, having, having had a child by Queen Mary, had become the regent um, alongside or also ruling, you know, large chunks of the world. Um, England in the 1550s would then have been a, a, a relatively minor role. Or the Scots, I mean, when James VI takes over in 1603, he again has hit the jackpot. And what that means is that he's not in a position, nor does he actually wish to, um, change the, the, new, uh, the new state of affairs. The only person who really does that, and that's a result, of military conquest is William I in 1066. Now, going back to George I, George I and George II, particularly George I, I mean, there's, there's no real satisfactory biography of George I. Um, the major biography is Ragnald Hatton, which is good on a particular view of international relations involving George I, but she didn't really understand the domestic politics. She didn't sympathize with uh, British politics. She was an IR specialist of that period, and she really lost interest with George I after, in his last six years. Uh, and um, no satisfactory biography has appeared since. Um, and I think one of the problems is that what that means is people often have a very superficial judgment of him. I mean, had I the time, I'd quite like, you know, I've done G2, I've done G3, I'd quite like to do G1, but I don't, I haven't got the time. Um, and I think the, the difficulty that I would say, if you're judging the king, is that he did find some aspects of the politics very irritating. Like William III, he wanted to be able to draw talent from across the political spectrum of those people whom he had views, positive views of, and who he thought were willing to serve him. And like William III, but even more so, he felt confined by the pressures from politicians that the monarch should choose people of a particular political affiliation, which in George I's case were the government Whigs. George II has exactly the same problem as does George III. We call it party government. So in part, that's a matter of the developing nature of British politics. And in part, the king finds it irritating but the reality is that George I um, 
re he I mean he wants Hanover is at war in his early years. Um, he wants to try and get territories for Hanover in part by using British diplomatic resources and if necessary, military muscle and financial strength. And those are the key things to him. And he's willing to go along with the pressures for party government. And that includes even when his favorite Whig ministers, the Stanhope up Sunderland ministry, is fails, basically, and he has to put up with Sir Robert Walpole, whom he does not warm to, but ultimately the king accepts Walpole, and Walpole is really calling the domestic shots. Um, as far as G2 is concerned, um, G2 can also get very irritated. He gets absolutely... And for G2 as I showed in my biography, although G2 is not a letter writer like G3 is and not a diarist, you have people like the Duke of Newcastle who are giving pretty verbatim accounts of the conversations with the king, and the king is coming across in a pretty splenetic fashion, and you, and you can almost hear his tones. Um, George II was absolutely livid at having to part with Carteret in 1744, with Carteret again in 46 after he brought him back. He was pretty furious about having to accept um, William Pitt the Elder um, in the mid-1750s. But ultimately, again, he saw politics and ministerial office as a device. He would try and get as good a deal as possible for those whom he thought best and for the policies which he thought best. But ultimately, he's not trying to overthrow the system. And those people that suggest that he is really were part of the rhetoric of politics, but not giving a fair assessment of what was going on. Well, uh, Professor Black, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. We've galloped across centuries. At we can come back and say some more about the early ones, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. Seriously, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting to ask some questions. I mean, some of them I'm not equipped to answer, but maybe one should, and again, I would urge listeners to think about, listen to some of these in terms not of, the suggestion that the speaker, or indeed the able interviewer, knows the answers, but that they, in a sense, know the questions. And I think that, so some of the points we've been raising, and I think you've been very much looking at issues of the extent of British exceptionalism or English exceptionalism, in other words, how far is there a distinct patterns, and how far and why are there particular uh, conjunctures, these are crucial. These are crucial issues. How we evaluate them is not so easy. And that's in a sense, partly because it's so difficult to work through what might have happened otherwise. And part of all, because you do need to have a certain degree of knowledge to know what contemporaries conceived of as alternatives. But I do think that this is very important, not just for considering monarchy, but also for unlocking broader questions of the nature of the political system. Well, we'll return to some of these uh, issues. Professor Jeremy Black, uh, among many other things, biographer of King George III. Thank you very much indeed. A pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? 
Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website www.thecritic.co.uk.